Faith brings the foes of God to the feast of God. Our text this morning is 2 Kings 6, verses 8 through 23. You just heard it read. Let's ask now for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask now that you would accompany that with the gift of your spirit, that we might understand your word, be transformed by it, and love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see a contrast in this story this morning. 2 Kings chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there, because we're going to look at the story as it unfolds. The first part of this story that begins in verse 8, we're going to see what men in the flesh do. How do the pagans respond when someone threatens their sense of control over their situation? Well, we're going to see that God's enemies walk by sight, not by faith. And therefore, they attempt to seize control of a situation when they don't understand all of the variables. In contrast, second, we'll see the man of God. How does the man of God walk? He does not walk by sight. He walks by faith. The irony is, those who walk by faith end up seeing more than those who walk by sight. And he has a very different response to his enemies. He asks God to take care of their enmity, and then he rushes in to make sure to bring his enemies to the feast of the table of the king. That's how Elisha sees his enemies. And then thirdly, we'll see the response of the king. What is a king supposed to do when his enemies are ushered in before him? Well, feed them, of course. That's what kings do. They throw a feast for their enemies in their presence. So let's start. Look at verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, here's where we're going to surprise attack next. Don't tell anybody. We're going to catch them off guard. We're going to go to this city right over here in Israel, and we're going to surprise them. We're going to win. We'll plunder, and we'll get back before they even know what's happening. And when the king of Syria shows up with his troops, there are a bunch of Israelite soldiers there. Well, they weren't there last week when he sent his spies they just showed up right in the end of time. So what does the king of Syria do? He goes, huh, that's a funny coincidence. Let's try it again. How about let's go over here to that part of Israel. Don't tell anybody. Let's go surprise them there. Then we'll get them. He shows up there. Guess what? The king of Israel has moved all his troops from that spot to this spot. This happens not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. And finally, the king of Syria is in a rage because he knows this cannot be a coincidence. He still doesn't know the reason for it, but he knows this is not just happening. So he calls all of his trusted military advisors together, and you can, you can see the rage and the fury in this part of the story. Tell me right now who's the mole. Who's the traitor? One of you is betraying me, and I want to hear it right here and now. And then you can see one of his servants, maybe in the back row, sort of sheepishly raises his hand and says, O king, uh, it's not me but I know who it is. And there's nobody here. You see, King, <clears throat> in Israel, there's this prophet. You might remember him because he actually miraculously healed your favorite general, Naaman. It's that one. It's that guy. It's Elisha. And he's telling the king of Israel all of your secret battle plans because that's the kind of prophet he is. That's what's going on, O king. Please don't kill us. So the king of Syria doesn't skip a beat. He says, okay, if that's the problem, I'll take it out. Find him and seize him. That's the theme of those who walk by sight. 
There is a problem. Someone is threatening the king of Syria's sense of control. The king of Syria thinks that if he can eliminate Elisha, the man of God, he will be in control over God's people, over his own people, and over his chosen destiny in that area of the world. The only thing standing between the king of Syria and absolute control, according to his line of sight, is this one man. All he has to do is take him out. So that's what he proceeds to do. Find him and seize him. But he has no idea what he's dealing with, does he? Because he doesn't factor in providence. He has no place for a God who controls the affairs of men in any of his plans or any of his thoughts because he's merely walking by sight and not by faith. What he thinks he sees is therefore not the true reality. Instead, what does he do? He, uh, he, he tries to seize Elisha. That's a very interesting thought. Where have we seen in Scripture someone walking up to something that they didn't fully understand and saying, well, according to what I can see, I think I understand everything I need to know, and I'm going to take this, and I'm going to seize it for myself. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They walked by sight, and they said, you know what? We want to be in control of our own lives and our own destiny, and we don't want God stepping in to mess up our plans, so all we have to do is find it and seize it, and then we'll be in control. That is in the blood of humanity ever since Adam and Eve. We see it crop up again with Pharaoh. These Israelites are threatening my sense of control, so guess what? I'm going to find all the baby boys, seize them, and then I'll be in control again. That didn't work out so well for Pharaoh, did it? Herod in the New Testament is going to do the same thing. I feel a threat to my throne. So I'll find all the baby boys in Bethlehem and I'll seize them and kill them. That didn't work out so well for Herod. But what is the ultimate example in Scripture of the wicked coming to find and seize the man of God so that they can be in ultimate control? It's Jesus. What does the king of Syria do with his armies? He sends them by night in great force to surround the man of God so that they can seize him and eliminate the threat that he poses to the king of Syria's absolute control. That is exactly what the rulers did with Jesus. They sent armed troops, not in the middle of the day as Jesus taught in the temple, as he challenged them on, but they sent him to the Garden of Gethsemane by night, they surrounded the man of God by force, and they thought, oh good, now we've seized him. Now we can eliminate this threat, and we can be in control. Well, that didn't work out so well for them either, did it? Because it was the very cross and resurrection that Jesus used to overthrow their power and to establish himself as the king of kings and lord of lords. So what does the king of Syria do? He sends his army, and he thinks he's going to eliminate this threat. But that's never how it goes. That's never how it works, because he is simply walking by sight. What does Elijah, Elisha do then? Elisha comes, and uh, he's, he's in the city of Dothan, which, by the way, we don't have time to go into that this morning, but when you read Bible stories, pay attention to details. It is not an accident that we are told that Elisha was holed up in the city of Dothan. 
if you look through the Bible, you'll see one other place where the city of Dothan is mentioned. It's in Genesis 37. Joseph is sent to go find his brothers, and he has to go to Dothan to find them. What happens to Joseph in Dothan? The enemies of God sense that the man of God is a threat to their sense of control, so they surround him and try to eliminate him. And yet God delivers his man in Dothan. Now we have another man of God in Dothan, and the enemies of God are doing the same thing. And God is once again going to deliver his man in Dothan. God doesn't waste his breath. When he sets up stories in Dothan, pay attention. It means something. So Elisha's servant gets up, and you can imagine his fear, but also perhaps that fear may have turned to anger. They are surrounded by the very army that Elisha has been in the business for months of predicting their every move. And the, ma- and the servant of Elisha gets up and walks out, and perhaps his first thought was, Elisha, what on earth? You should have seen this one coming. Why are we here if they're here? Why didn't you send to the king of Israel to put his troops here? Why didn't we run away last night? Are you dropping the ball? What's wrong with you, man? But this was all according to God's plan. Elisha's response is simply, there are more with us than there are with them. Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And when God opens the eyes of the servant of Elisha, what happens? What does he see? Well, first of all, let's talk about what he doesn't see. He doesn't see, oh, I guess the the image of the Syrian army surrounding us, it was just a vision. It's really not real. They're not here. Okay, good. That's not what he sees. When God opens his eyes, his earthly problems do not vanish. They're still there. Instead, God opens his eyes to see something else that is going to completely take away his sense of worry and anxiety over what he can see on earth. He sees the heavenly hosts of God surrounding even the enemies of God. That's how he knows they're going to be okay. Now notice this again. He doesn't see a vision of the future. Elisha doesn't show him a vision of the end of history when God is going to come and the Messiah is here and he's going to put everything right. So therefore, even if we die today, who cares? So what? It'll all be okay in the end. Well, that's true. God is going to set everything right one day in the future. But that's not what Elisha drew his servant's attention to to give him hope in this story. It was a spiritual reality. What was true in the heavenly realm that we cannot see unless God opens our eyes. But when he saw it, he saw what was true in the heavenly realms right then and there at that moment. And what was true in the spiritual realm right then and there completely transformed the way he viewed what was also true in the earthly realm right then and there. So what's the point for us? What is this driving at? Well, we're Christians in the new covenant. So what's the state of affairs in heaven right now that we need to see, that we need to focus on, and that needs to drive our interpretation of everything else happening on earth around us? What is true in the heavenly places in the new covenant? Not later, but right now. Jesus came back from the dead, and he appeared to his disciples, and what did he tell them? All authority in heaven and on earth 
has now been transferred to me. Therefore, go take the nations. Go disciple them. All of them. Because they belong to me. I bought them with my blood. I rose from the dead in order to inherit them. They're mine right now. I'm the king. Go get them. What else is true? Are we still waiting on the Holy Spirit so that we can actually see this great plan happen? Nope. He already came at Pentecost. Jesus is on his throne right now ruling over the nations. The Spirit is here empowering the church. And the Spirit is active right now subduing all the nations and bringing them to the call of the gospel. That's not something we're still waiting to begin. It has begun. It's broken in upon the earth. And it's here and happening right now. And when you open your eyes to see that heavenly reality, Jesus sitting on his throne, subduing all of his enemies beneath his feet through the preaching of the gospel, then you can look at whatever is happening on the earth and go... It's fine. Why would I worry? Why would I be anxious? It doesn't take problems away, but it does put them in the proper perspective for those who walk by faith and not merely by the sight of their eyes. That's what Elisha is trying to get his servant to see. That's what we need to see this morning. I've heard, I'm sure it's nobody here, but I've heard that rumors that there are even some people in our community that are beginning to worry and be anxious over the next presidential election. That's a year away, and people are already starting to worry about it. If you see that Jesus is on his throne, subduing all nations beneath the feet of his glorious gospel, then you can turn around and look at what is happening in countries where Christians are... being persecuted, you can look at what's happening in our own culture with increasing hostility towards our fundamental beliefs, and you can be as Elisha's servant was. I don't know how this is all going to work out, but I'm not worried anymore. Why would I worry? I've just seen what's happening right now in heaven. So why would I let what's happening on earth bother me? Instead, what's the perspective of Elisha? He has a twofold prayer for his enemies. And the first one rings true with all of us. But the challenge of this story is not to stop with half of Elisha's prayer when you pray for your enemies, but to go the full distance that Elisha did. So what do we see here? The first half of Elisha's prayer is, Lord, strike them with blindness. Second half of his prayer is, Lord, open their eyes. You see that? Why did Elisha pray for God to strike his enemies with blindness? So that he would frustrate and foil their plans to oppress his people. Elisha is concerned for the protection of God's people against the plans of God's enemies, and that's why he prays, God, smite your enemies with blindness so that their evil plans would come to nothing. And as soon as God answers that prayer, Elisha doesn't go, My work here is done. (laughs) Take that, enemies. No. He rushes into the situation saying, oh good, finally, now I have a chance to lead you to the king so that the king can bless you and welcome you to his table. Oh goody. That's what Elisha wants to do with the enemies of God. He's not out for their destruction. He's out for the destruction of their evil plans. And as soon as God confuses their evil plans, he rushes in to bring his enemies into the presence of the king of Israel so that they can sit and dine at his table at the feast. That's how Elisha treats his enemies. That's how Elisha views the enemies of God. They're an opportunity 
they're an opportunity for some good, hospitable evangelism. So Elisha, he prays for God to strike them with blindness. God strikes them with blindness. He comes and he says, he uses a little righteous deception against his enemies, right? Not for their destruction, but for their blessing. He says, no, no, no. You think that you're seeking what you really want. You're not seeking what you really want. But I can bring you to what you really want. Follow me. I will take you to the man that you're really after. It's the king of Israel. That's who you really want to see. So come on, come on with me. Let's go. He brings them into the presence of the king, into the throne city, the presence of the great king of Israel, the ruler of God's people. And then he prays, Lord, now that I've brought them to the king, to your anointed, open their eyes that they may see the king in his glory and receive the king's blessing directly from his presence. And God answers that prayer of Elisha. And he opens his enemy's eyes in the presence of the great king. And here's where the story gets a little disappointing, right? We've been reading along, and Elisha is playing his part perfectly. He is exemplifying exactly what a man of God, what a true prophet of God does to respond by faith to, to the challenges, to the enmity, the opposition that the pagans bring. And then now it's the king of Israel's turn to play the part of a type and a shadow of the Messiah, of the great king. And what does he do? He totally flubs his part. And you can see Elisha over there on the other part of the stage going, Man, this is not what a king is supposed to do. Read your script, dude. What's your problem? Nudge, nudge. And he goes, Yeah, yeah, uh, sorry, Elisha. What is a king supposed to do? When my enemies are brought before me, humbled and subdued, what is a king supposed to do with that? And you can see Elisha. Feed them, of course. What else would a king do? Don't you know your Bible? That's what David did at the great celebration when he brought in the Ark of the Covenant and he established it in Jerusalem. What did he do? He threw a party. He threw a feast. And he specifically gave three things to the people of God. He gave them bread. He gave them meat, flesh. And he gave them wine. That's what kings give their people. A real king gives his people a feast. And it's flesh, bread, and wine. Can you think of a real king who really gives his people flesh and bread and wine that forever changes them? His name is Jesus. That's what we're here. We're here at his table this morning. This is the table of King Jesus. He said, I will give my flesh in John 6 for the life of the world. And then he established, do this as my memorial with the tokens of bread and wine in which he is right here feeding us this morning with himself. That's what a real king does for his enemies. We, who were by nature enemies of God, Paul says in Romans 5 that Jesus, while we were enemies, came and died for us. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus endure the torture of crucifixion? Well, to feed you, of course so that he could welcome you right here this morning and give you himself at his table, in his presence, so that the king could feast with his former enemies who have been brought beneath him in subjugation, now as friends, no longer as foes. That's what faith does. Faith brings foes to the feast. If it's that important to Jesus 
to be able to establish some way where he can offer himself to you through bread and wine to feast with you at his table, is it that important to you? How important is it to you to show up when the king has done this much to open his table to you? Do you think that this is as important as Jesus obviously does? Well, the king of Israel wasn't ready for his part, but Elisha fixed it, and the king of Israel ended up throwing a great feast for his enemies. And after that feast, the king of Israel sent them back. That was a gutsy move. After the king feasts with his enemies, he sends them back out into the world, back into their homes, back into their communities, back into their cultures, and he says, go now in peace. These men are changed by their encounter at the table of the king. These men are, will never be the same. They go back, having feasted in the presence of the king, and it changes not just their own lives, it changes the course of international military relations. Did you notice that? That's how potent the table of the king is. That's how powerful it is to have your eyes opened to see the king of Israel and to sit down and feast at his table in his presence. It changes the course of entire communities. It changes the course of nations themselves. But those details belong to God. We don't need to worry about that. Our responsibility is simply to keep the feast. Show up with joy, with your eyes wide open. Show up with faith. That's how we keep the feast. And that's how God turns his enemies into his friends. And that is how Jesus changes the world. Faith brings foes to the feast. Do not walk by sight. Do not approach the problems in your life saying, this is all I can see, but I'm going to take charge of the situation and seize it and fix it. Instead, step back. Step back from what you can see happening all around you in the world going on right now and focus on what you know to be as true by faith in the heavenly places. Jesus is on his throne. He's reigning. The Spirit is here. He's powerful. You've heard it before. It's worth hearing again. When Jesus told his church, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what was he saying? He was saying that the gates of hell will not withstand the onslaught of the people of God in time in history after Jesus left and sent his spirit here. The gates of hell are not aggressors. You think about that? Jesus did not give his church the promise that when all hell surrounds you and attacks you and you're hunkered down defending yourself, don't worry, I won't let you be obliterated. That is not the promise of Christ to his church. The promise of Christ to his church is all the nations belong to me, go get them. And by the way, as you're out there, not even the gates of hell itself will be able to stand before the onslaught of the preaching of the gospel empowered by the Spirit of God. When you storm the very gates of hell themselves, they will fall. 
That is what is real right now in the new covenant. That is what our God is up to. And when we see that by faith, it transforms our view of everything else that is happening. And it enables us to go and find enemies and bring them in here to feast with the king so that they will go away changed, no longer enemies, but now friends and co-laborers in the same fields for the same gospel that we are engaged in. So when you see Jesus calling all men to his great feast, go get them and bring them here. And try to be as excited about this table as Jesus is. And let's try it this morning, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for what you are doing. We thank you for what you will do. We trust you, and we simply ask that you would open our eyes to walk in the light of heavenly realities that we know are true, and that that would transform the way we see and approach all of our earthly trials and tribulations. We ask that you would bring many, many more of your foes to feast with us at your table right here. In Jesus' name, amen.